I want to say again how good it is to see all of you. And all of you watching on the live stream, we're so happy that so many tune in there to follow us. Sometimes it's uh, not feeling well and not being able to get out, but others from around the world actually watch our live stream. So we're very pleased to use that mechanism to proclaim our Lord Jesus Savior. We're in John chapter 20. going to read the first few verses, 1 through 9. If you have your scripture, I invite you to follow along. It will be on the screen. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary of Magdala went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over, looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the barrier cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the grave. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our most precious Heavenly Father, this is the high day of our Christianity. Lord, Christmas is very special because that's the day that we celebrate Jesus coming to earth as a child. Your gift to us of the God-man coming. But Father, this Easter... This celebration that we do, Resurrection Sunday, is so special because it's the day that we acknowledge that Jesus Christ could not be contained by the grave, could not be held in the tomb, but rose again to reign with you on high, sitting at your right hand, interceding on our behalf. So Father, we ask you to join us on this very special day. May you infill each and every one with your Holy Spirit. May this room be uh, filled with your Spirit that people would know they've been in the presence of Almighty God. Lord, may we leave here re-challenged, reaffirming our faith in you and our desire to serve you, all because of Jesus Christ and what he did for us. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. I've shared with you, we had the uh, sunrise service, and the Isaac's house is so wonderful for that, to where it sits up on a little knoll, it looks across a small valley, there's a hill in the distance, and that sun peeks up over the hill. And as we started our service today, Mark led us, and lo, in the grave he lay, and And as I got up to speak, I turned around, there was just a little bit of sun up above the hill. But it was a beautiful day and very stirring. And and as I thought about that and, and thought about that setting this week, I thought about the verse by King David in Psalms 121, 1. He said, I look unto the hills from whence cometh my help. 
And there's little question on the interpretation of that. David certainly wasn't worshiping the hills, wasn't counting on the hills. He was looking for where his help come. But another way you can take that, whence cometh my help, is that's where my help comes from. And as I thought about that, I thought about that hill that Jesus died on, that hill of Golgotha. And I, I wonder if David had a little bit of a, of a foreshadowing, a little bit of God had given him a premonition, an idea of what was to come, that it's on that hill that our hope rested. The hill called Golgotha or called Mount Calvary looked much different than the hills we looked out in, covered with grass, with some trees, and uh, the beauty of nature around us. Golgotha is a, is a rocky mount, not very pleasing to look at. And if you look at the face of it and use your imagination a bit, there are kind of holes in the rock and those holes, you can see, you can make out what could be imagined as two eyes, a bony nose, and a bony smile. And in fact, the people of the day saw that and called it the place of the skull, or just skull. And so it was almost a harbinger of what was going to happen on that mount. And of course, this week, as we've gone through Holy Week, you may have been to a service that reminded you of the different events. But leading up to that, Jesus, of course, was taken from the Garden of Gethsemane where He was praying, where even He prayed, Father, if it be possible, take this cup from Me. He knew what was coming. It didn't catch Him by surprise. It wasn't foisted on Him once He got here. Jesus knew what was going to happen, and He came anyway. But he's there in the garden praying. But of course, he finishes out, Lord, that's what I want, but your will be done. He knew that needed to be carried out. And we've talked about how he was silent. He didn't answer his accusers. We talked about how he's been treated as a transgressor, as a criminal, and how all of this was prophesied beforehand. And we ask the question, why would Jesus remain silent? And it's surely that the Son of God could have been persuasive enough to convince the judge to let him go. But if Jesus had been let go and had not been condemned to the cross, we would not have our sins atoned for through his death on the cross, taken to the grave. So it was necessary on our behalf. And I'm a, I'm a Trekkie kind of guy. Uh, may not be as bad as some, but I do like Star Trek. And there's one, and I forget the version, that kind of tells you I'm, I'm not bona fide. But in it, Spock goes into this chamber full of radiation. It has to be shut down or it's going to take out the whole ship. But even Spock in his strength as a Vulcan, the radiation overcomes him. And he's collapsed after having turned it off. He's collapsing now right at the glass panel. And Kirk goes to see him, his old friend. And Kirk even asks him, why Spock, why do you have to die? And Spock responds, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the one. And Jesus said that some 2,000 years ago 
Why is it necessary for you to die on the cross, Lord? Why is it necessary for you to do that? Everybody that had been around him, walked with him, loved him. He had been kind to those who were downtrodden. He healed those who were hurting and weak. He healed their body. He healed their spirit. He healed their soul. He healed their emotions. So many would say, why is this necessary? And Jesus could respond back, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the one. He needed to die on our behalf. The Bible tells us without the blood there can be no remission of sin. Sin must be covered by shed blood. It's a thing that can repulse us today. We're too enlightened. We're too sophisticated now. But that is the case. It is the system laid out. Over the years in the New Old Testament, the Israelites had sacrificed animals once a year as a symbolic covering of their sin. It didn't take away their sin. It didn't absolve them of, skin, of sin. It just kind of appeased God for a little while. But it wasn't His appeasing that was important. What was important was that the people learned that a lamb must be sacrificed for their sin to be taken away. And Jesus is that lamb that came. Jesus is that perfect, unblemished lamb that had not sinned, that had committed no wrong, that took our sins, the sins of all mankind, past, present, and future, on Himself and carried them to the grave where being God, He was able to leave them there, defeat them, rise again victorious, as Ephesians says, leading captives in His train, and making it possible then for us to experience the resurrection. So that was a powerful hill that Jesus was on. And I could envision the three crosses up there. They were empty. And as we read in the story, those ladies first got up early in the morning. They went to the grave. They wanted to minister to the body. They wanted to, uh, it was typical to anoint a body with frankincense uh, in order to cover the stench of death was, was the reason behind it. They didn't, they, they didn't think logically. They didn't think matter-of-factly. They didn't know how they were going to roll the stone away. They just wanted to be where Jesus was, alive or dead, and they wanted to care for His body that they thought would be there. When they got there, of course, the stone was rolled away, and this was no little pebble. This was a massive stone big enough to cover the entrance to a cave. And typically, whenever they would have a tomb like that, they would have a little bit of a trough in front of the opening so that the stone rolled down into this trough. And there's no way even one or two men could move it. So they're, they're, they're wondering, how on earth are we going to get to Jesus? But when they got there, the stone was rolled away. And we're told in other accounts that Roman soldiers had been placed in front to guard it because they... Those Jewish leaders were, were suspicious that Jesus' disciples would try to steal the body to say, oh, look, he rose again. So they placed 
Roman soldiers there. So it would have been a, 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 a suicide attempt for someone to go and try to move that stone. They would have captured him or killed him if necessary. But when the ladies got there, the stone was gone. Been miraculously rolled away. They pondered, they were bewildered, and they saw somebody dressed as an angel speak to them. Said, I know why you're here. You're here to see Jesus. But he's not here. He has risen. He has risen on high. And they ran to tell the disciples, as the song said, and as our scripture said. All of you are familiar with the phrase, probably, that familiarity breeds contempt. And you may have some inkling of what that means, but I want to put forth to you that we're in danger of that being true regarding the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That we have contempt for it. And not the kind of contempt you may think of that is outward expression of hatred uh, towards someone and despising, but contempt is also disregarding something of worth. Disregard for something that should be taken into account. And so disregard or contempt is like being in a judge's chamber and he's trying to say something or he's issuing a sentence and you act like it's not important at all. That you just dismiss what he's saying. That you don't, uh, you don't have any, uh, any fear or any respect for it. That would be contempt. And we run the danger as Christians and as people who have lived in a Christian nation who have heard this account time and time again of becoming contemptuous of it in that we have forgotten just how wonderful and serious and applicable it is for us. We have forgotten how it was against all the odds that one could come and that one could be God in the flesh, God incarnate, And that somehow that one man, God incarnate, would be able to take the sins of all mankind upon himself. And how that one could then die on the cross, in this case for those sins, to be crucified by the Roman soldiers, to be buried in a tomb. How on earth could that absolve us of our sin? How one who had been dead, who had been laying in the tomb, had had the burial cloths put on, could rise again. This is against all odds. Never had happened before, never has happened again. We have other great religious leaders throughout history that have caused whole religions to be formed and based on them. We know where they're buried. We know what happened to them. But there is no tomb in Jerusalem that you can go to and they say, there's his bones. There's where he is because he is risen. And we have multiple accounts of that as you continue in the book of John and the other gospels of his appearing to his disciples, of his appearing to Mary Magdala. And she wanted to hug him, of course, But he warned her his body was not complete yet. It had been glorified. He came to Thomas again, good old doubting Thomas that has to have proof. And it says he walked through a wall. So he he had that 
that different composition to his body, and he appeared to Thomas, and he said, Here, Thomas, touch the wounds in my hands and feet. Prove to yourself that I am Jesus that was crucified, and Thomas did. He was able to do that. Jesus appeared again on the road to Emmaus. Some were walking along, returning to their home, discussing what had happened in Jerusalem. Big news, fantastic news, news that had never occurred. This Jesus that hundreds, if not thousands, saw killed and crucified on the cross is not there anymore. They can't find His body. And they're walking along with these things and Jesus comes up beside them, appears, and He starts telling them about the meaning of it. And then He disappears and, and they say, didn't our souls burn even as He talked with us? And they ran to tell the disciples. Account after account of Jesus' death and resurrection and appearing to others. There is a Jewish scholar called Josephus Josephus certainly is no believer in Jesus Christ, but he wrote of the history of that time. And he mentions Pilate sentencing Jesus to be crucified. And he mentions the uh, after effects of Jesus' resurrection. And so we have that other truth outside of Scripture, that other writing outside of Scripture by a non-believer about this happening. It's real. It happened. It's not a myth. We have other accounts. We have accounts, uh, the Bible talks about it, about there being a great earthquake. And I've read that if you go to Jerusalem, you can still see signs of where the ground split from that earthquake. We read how the temple veil was torn from top to bottom. If you'll remember your Old Testament history when they built the temple in uh, the tabernacle in the wilderness, there was a, it was made of curtains and there was one great curtain that separated the people from the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest was allowed to go in there and only once a year to do the sacrifice for sins. It was a barrier between the average man and God. And in the temple they built in Jerusalem, they erected that, that veil, that curtain as well, and it was big and heavy. But when Jesus Christ died, that curtain was torn from top to bottom as if God took it in His hands and rent it apart, meaning that there was no more barrier between man and God anymore. There was nothing standing in the way. Jesus Christ who had died and risen again, caused that veil to be rent so that everyone had full access to God. These are real accounts that are testified to and written about. Powerful, powerful day. But it's so familiar to us that I think we lose the mystery, the majesty of it, the, the profoundness of it, of just what no pun intended, or I'll use the pun, earth-shaking event it was. Because all of nature reacted. The skies were cloudy and dark and, and overcast. Earth trembled at Jesus' resurrection and death. But He rose again. He appeared to the people. And He had promised beforehand that He would. And that after He ascended, 
He would go to heaven to prepare a place for you and me and each and every one. Because God wants us, wants His people, wants His creation with Him. Whenever they were estranged in the garden from Adam and Eve's sin, it hurt this Father's spirit. He enjoyed that fellowship. He enjoyed talking to His creation. He enjoyed with them in the garden. And He wanted that back again. And so He had this set in motion. He had this plan for Himself to come, take on bodily form, take on the sins of man to die so that He could rise again, restoring fellowship again. There's a Scripture I use in funerals from time to time, and it used to puzzle me and maybe even make me a little angry because the verse goes, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. And just in my humanness, I would cry out to God, God, how can you rejoice that one of your saints has died? My heart is breaking. This one that I love is gone. This one that I want to be with again and talk with again is taken from me. And, and you're rejoicing in their death? And then the God works in my mind, works in my spirit, and reminds me, that he had loaned that person to me for a while. He had let them come to earth to be born as a baby, to interact with people, but that God was eager to have them return home. We are told we are but a vapor, but a mist like a, that comes off the ground until the hot sun comes and disappears. Our life is short. We hope to live maybe 80 years, 90 years, 100 years, I don't know how long you want to go for, but no matter if you break the record of how long and you become the oldest person, that amount of time is still but a blip in eternity. And so God has made it possible for you to have eternal life. The Spirit's going to continue. The Spirit that God breathed into man there in Genesis, the pneuma, the God-breath, that never ceases. It's going to exist. The question is, where is it going to exist? If you reject Jesus Christ as Savior, as Messiah, as who He is, the Bible teaches us that your eternity will spent in separation from God. That at the end, He's going to separate, and He calls them the sheep and the goats. The sheep being those righteous that follow Him, the goats being those that reject Him. And He'll say to the goats, depart from Me, for I never knew you. And God doesn't send those people to eternal damnation. They choose it for themselves because God has done everything to make us able to accept the gift, to should want to receive the gift. And so there is that time coming but Jesus and God did their work so that it doesn't have to be a time of eternal separation, but a time of eternal union, reunion, living with the Father in heaven. Peter tells us God is not willing that any should perish, but that all might come to eternal life. God is working to bring people to Him to bring people to salvation. He quickens the Spirit. He sends the Word through various ways. 
in order that people might understand and know and accept the truth, accept eternal life, to accept the abundant life that God has in store for them as some just choose to go another way. And so we come today to celebrate a risen Lord. He is risen. He is alive. He is seated at the right hand of the Father interceding on your behalf. He is there preparing a place for you. Whatever that is, it's more than we can imagine, more than we can think of. It's, it's gooder than we can think of. It's greater than anything we can come up with. And He wants you there. But for you to get there, you have to believe this account. You have to believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. You have to believe that He came to die for your sins. You have to admit you have sins that you do wrong, that you're incapable of living a perfect life, and you accept the blood of Jesus Christ as your propitiation, as your, uh, as your uh, payment for that. It doesn't cost anything except the willingness to say, I've sinned, Father, and I accept Your gift of salvation. Like the prodigal son coming home to the Father, God is that Father standing at the head of the road that sees you coming from way off and calls to the angels, bring a robe, bring a ring, set up a feast, for my child has come home. He's waiting for each and every one to come home. And Christians, we need to work on not holding the story in contempt. To not belittling it, not reducing it, not diminishing it, not thinking maybe it isn't true, but to stand firm in our faith that Jesus Christ is Lord and to proclaim that to those who don't know because He is the way and the truth and the life. And no man comes to the Father but through Him. And so I encourage you today to consider His gift of salvation. If you've not made that decision in your life that you would choose today to take care of it. If you've come to that place that you've acknowledged that but you haven't let people publicly know, then we invite you to come and share your faith in Jesus Christ. If you need a church home, we're trying to be a good one that preaches the Word of God, that heals spirits, that loves people, and cares about their needs, then we'd love you to be a part of us. So whatever it is that you need to do, God is ready to hear you and ready to welcome you.